Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So let's start with a question today. The question is, what would you do if you were guaranteed that the next 10 years of your life were going to be filled with peace? That there will be no uh, financial trouble, there will be no um, marriage trouble, you're not going to have any trouble with your kids, no... um, Uh, health problems, no career problems, everything's going to be great for the next 10 years, it's all going to go your way. What would you do? Would you start a business? Would you take up a hobby? Would you, you know, take a great vacation? What what would you do? The the character that we're going to look at today becomes the king of a people who, right out of the gate, he gets 10 years of absolute peace, which was uncommon for kings in that era. Uh, There's always somebody knocking at the door, wanting to invade you, wanting to take over. And so uh, he gets these 10 years of absolute peace. And what he chooses to do in those 10 years impacts his kingdom in incredibly positive ways, as we're going to see this morning. If you have your Bible, take it out and turn to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles, and I think we're going to start in uh, chapter 14 here in a little bit. Now there's something that you have to know about what's going on at this particular time with the people of God in this particular uh, part of history. This is kind of a dark time for them and for a couple of different reasons. I want to show you a map that is going to illustrate for you kind of what I'm talking about. You see the kingdom of Judah on the bottom and the kingdom of Israel at the top. At one time they had been one kingdom. But there's been a civil war among God's people and now there's this dual kingdom thing going on you have the to the north is the israel and to the south a kingdom called judah and when we talk about the good kings of the bible we what we find is that out of 43 kings we're told that there were 43 kings that ruled over israel of the 43 kings only nine of them were good kings and none of those good kings came out of the kingdom of israel they all were found in the kingdom of judah and so in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, there's, there's just this handful of kings that were good. One of them was a, a, the guy we're going to look at today. And, and the second reason, so the first reason is there's civil war. That's one of the reasons it's dark. Second reason it's pretty dark for these people are these. There are idols everywhere throughout the land. What you're looking at are the pagan deities that were, were all throughout the nations. You're looking at uh, the god of Baal and also the god of Asherah, and you would have found little statues and and icons like this all throughout the different countrysides. If you'd gone into people's homes, you would have seen things like this. Um, There were these things called high places that were places of worship where people would worship these foreign gods everywhere the people had fallen into the worship of foreign gods. This was a problem because the history of God's people is God rescues them from the Egyptians, He takes them out of slavery. They go through the desert. He makes this agreement with them, something that the Bible refers to as a covenant. I know sometimes you hear that word and you're like, that that word confuses me. All it is is a promise or an agreement, okay? A covenant is just an agreement. And God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And my part of the deal is, I'm going to protect you. I will give you this land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. Your end of the agreement is I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments and you follow those. And anybody uh, happen to know what the first commandment was? You will worship no other gods, exactly. There are to be no other gods. And, and, and the period that we're looking at today 
the worship of foreign gods is everywhere. It's permeated all throughout the people of God, and this is a dark, dark time for the people of God. And now onto the scene steps this king named Asa. King Asa takes the throne around 910 B.C., and, and in his first 10 years, as I said, he's going to experience peace. He's going to experience prosperity. It's all going to go his way. And in that first 10 years of peace, he implements five practices that lead to incredible spiritual growth for his kingdom and his people. And these five practices aren't just things that are limited to what could have happened in the kingdom of Judah. These five things are things that we can implement and we can reap the rewards of implementing these practices as well. Second Chronicles chapter 14, the story begins with King Asa in verse 2. It says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. That's how you know Asa was a good king. Because all of the good kings have that said about them. He did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. So exactly what did Asa do? We find out in verse 3. He removed the foreign altars and the high places smashed and the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. Now, Asherah pole was, was nothing more than a wooden idol that represented the goddess of Asherah. Okay, and, and a lot of people had these in their, you know, like in their camps or in their backyards or whatever. But check out the verbs. I want to go back and read that. I want you to take note of the verbs that get used here. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. What is he doing? He is removing the competition. That's what he's doing. He says, we made an agreement with God. We said we were going to serve no other gods, and we're blowing it. And he systematically begins to remove the competition of the God of Israel. Here's how he does it. Verse 5. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. So he removed all of the idols and all of the Asherah poles and all the high places in the kingdom of Judah and all the cities. So you start thinking to yourself, well, okay, so like how many cities are we talking about? Like, you know, Judah's not a huge kingdom. Are we talking about five cities? I mean, is it 20? 25 sounds like a lot for the little kingdom of Judah. I mean, how many, how many cities are we talking about? In the book of Joshua... It describes the story of God's people and, in, in, and how they took possession of the, the promised land, the land that God had promised them. And in chapter 15, there is a list of every town that the tribe of Judah inherited. I want to show you the list. Now, I counted all those cities. Not only did I count them, I typed them, all right? So... Um, I counted all those cities. I went back after I typed them out. I counted them. I counted 116. 116 different cities. So you start asking yourself, how long does it take to go to 116 different cities and take down the high places? What kind of mountains are you climbing to get to some of these cities? What kind of valleys did you have to go through? What did you have to risk? What kind of encounters did you have? You know, as you... I mean, you're destroying property is what you're doing, property that belongs to someone else. What kind of confrontations happen? How, you know, what, what grew out of this? I mean, can you imagine the conversation? Hey, is that a statue of Baal in your backyard? Why, yes, yes, it is a statue of Baal. We offer incense to Baal. He, you know, he brings the rains and he makes our crops grow. And so, yes, this, 
the statue to Baal is really important to us so we can offer incense to it. Yeah, um, we're here from King Asa's camp and we're going to tear that down because he says you can't have that. Well, no, I need that. No, it's gone. <laughs> I mean, that, that conversation happened over and over and over again. Can you imagine some of the confrontations that grew out of that conversation? I mean, there would be some people that wouldn't have liked that. 116 towns, he goes in, he removes, he cuts down, he smashes. King Asa is relentless. When it comes to the foreign gods, King Asa has a zero-tolerance policy on foreign gods. He says, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. So here's the question for us. What does it look like for you and me to remove the competition? Is there something in your life that is competing for your affection, for your time, and for your attention with God? I would just ask the question, what's competing? What's competing? I have some guesses. I have some guesses about what competes for our time and attention with God. Remote control, I'm going to see if the game's on. No, I don't like that game. I'm going to check the other game. Well, they're getting killed. I'm going to go to the next game. Or I'll just turn on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or Roku or, you know, Apple TV or whatever it is that you've got. And what can we stream, right? And the word isn't stream anymore. The word now is binge. What can we binge watch, right? I know what. I'm going to watch... The, the series, The Walking Dead, why you would want to watch that, I don't really know. I've tried. It didn't do anything for me. I've got a good friend that loved it. I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get it. So, but you sit down, maybe after work, you know, you're going to watch a couple of episodes of The Walking Dead, and the next thing you know, it's midnight. You've watched seven episodes of The Walking Dead, and, and as you make your way to your bed, you kind of look like The Walking Dead, Right? I mean, this thing can sap your time so fast. This can sap your attention so fast. Not a bad thing. In and of itself, this is not a bad thing. But it can get out of hand. I hear something. Anybody recognize this? All the kids in the crowd go, ooh, Xbox. Again, I've played Xbox. My particular game of, of choice is Forza. I love Forza. Get to race cars that I'll never be able to afford, but it's fun. And I have known what it is to sit in my chair at 10 o'clock at night, you know, racing Forza. I'm just going to play a few games. And then the next thing you know, it's like, is that the sun? Like, holy cow. I mean, so how do you know if maybe you're a little too addicted to Xbox? Well, kids, here's an example. If you know that on October 12th, the new version of um, oh, what's the name of it? Black Ops 4. What is it? Call of Duty. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. Call of Duty. Black Ops 4, October 12th. Get your remotes ready. This thing can steal your time and attention in a hurry. How about something like this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A little golf never hurt anybody, right? Now, here's the problem. If you just watched me take a swing, and you're going, oh, his back wasn't right, he's out of alignment, that stance is horrible, he needs to tuck his gut in, he needs to bring his arm in. If you know all that, I, I imagine 
this could be something that could steal your time and attention away from God. Now again, are any of these things bad in and of themselves? No. None of these things are bad. These things are all, you might even say that these are gifts that God has given us to be able to entertain us, for us to have fun. I mean, I've, I've held one of these in my hand <clears throat> while my son and I played games with them. And we were able to, you know, have a good time and talk about what was going on. And, and I, you know, I think about when my kids were younger and we would play with one of these or with a, a Wii and we had a ball. And, and something like a remote, I have watched some programming on television that has been very instructive for me. I've also watched programming on television that was very not <laughs> instructive for me, right? I've watched things on television that, truth be told, I shouldn't be watching on television. So, so this can be a really good thing, or this can be a really bad thing. Golf is a wonderful game, right up until the moment that you hit that shot that makes words come out of your mouth that you swore you'd never say. You know, I'll be playing golf and I'll think to myself, I paid money to feel like this. But golf is, I think, something that God gave us. It's a game. It's fun. It's, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem is when we take something good and we make it ultimate and we turn it into a God. Television is a wonderful thing. But television should never get in the way of our walk with Jesus. And, and you have to be honest with yourself. You have to ask yourself the question, is my television getting in the way of my walk with Jesus? Is my golf game? Am I playing too much Call of Duty? King Asa would say, listen, if you want to grow your faith, ask yourself, is there something in my path? Is there something in my life that is competing for my time and attention with God? And if it is, I've got to, I've got to remove it. I've got to crush it. I've got to smash it. I've got to cut it down. I cannot leave that standing. What is competing for my relationship with God? That's a great question each of us can ask. So why is King Asa so fired up about removing the competition? It's possible that one of the reasons he's fired up about it is that the people are going to need to remove the competition to do the next practice he's about to institute. We find that in 2 Chronicles 14.4. He, uh, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord the God of their ancestors, and to obey his laws and commands. Second practice King Asa institutes is seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Stop seeking the foreign gods. Start seeking your own God. But we don't really like that, do we? We don't really know what that means. I mean, seek the Lord, that sounds kind of strange. What, 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 we don't talk like that. What, what is seek the Lord? So what does it mean to seek the Lord? I think the best way to say it is it means to pursue God's presence. Are you pursuing God's presence? Now, you may enjoy God's presence, and you may hope for God's presence, but that's different than pursuing God's presence. To seek the Lord involves pursuing God's presence regularly, systematically. It's a pattern. It's on purpose. It's intentional. It's something you set out to do on purpose. So what does it look like to seek the Lord? Well, I can't speak for anybody but me. I think it looks differently for just about all of us. I'll just tell you what it looks like for me. It generally includes my Bible. It, it, a lot of times it'll include a, a, a pad and paper, a, a pen and paper, so I can take some notes. A lot of times it's going to involve some kind of uh, maybe a journal or, or it's going to involve a, 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 a devotional book. I've got them you know, in hard copy and I've also got them on my 
digital device where I'll, I'll, you know, on my Kindle and I can read for a bit and it can direct some of my thoughts. It almost, for me, it almost can't involve my phone. Now, maybe for you it can, okay? Well, you know, we've got you version on our phones, and that's awesome. Um, Craig Rochelle and his church have done a great job to give us that, that, that app, and it's wonderful. But I just know for me, if I'm st- sitting there and I've got my phone in my hand and I'm reading the Bible on the YouVersion app, it's just way too easy for me to think, I wonder if I got an email. I wonder what they're saying on Twitter right now. Who won the game last night? The next thing you know, I'm not seeking the Lord. I'm seeking the score, right? I'm seeking something else. So if you can do that, more power to you. I'm just suggesting probably it's hard, as hard for you as it is for me. Put for, for 20 minutes, put the phone down. Pick up your Bible. Usually for me, it involves a nice, comfortable chair. Somebody says, oh, Brad, I can't, I can't get in a comfortable chair. If I get in a comfortable chair and I start trying to pray, I fall asleep. Let me just ask you a question. You ever had a baby fall asleep in your arms when you were talking to them? Isn't that one of the most precious things in the world for you as an adult? When one of your kids has fought, you've been talking to them, and you know, it's all wonderful, and you're rocking them, and the next thing you know, you don't hear anything out of them, and they've fallen asleep. Isn't that wonderful? I think we think we're hurting God when we fall asleep on him. I think God looks at us and goes, oh, man, look at that. They fell asleep. That's awesome. Don't be afraid to get comfortable. Don't be afraid to, to, to lose yourself for a few moments praying to God, reading your Bible, talking to him, listening to him. People say, I can't hear from God. How intentional are you about it? Do you ever get alone? Do you ever get your Bible out and read a few things and then just say, God, I'm just going to sit here and see what you have to say to me. And what I find is a lot of times it's not what, what I don't hear God just say things like, you're going to go to you know, Indianapolis today. No. I'll, I'll say things like, God, I just, that thing happened and it's just bugging me. And it makes me mad. And I hear God say things like, well, Brett, why would that make you mad? Well, because, because of the way it made me look. Oh. So now we're concerned about how we look. Is that anything that you think I'm, I care about? How you look? Well, no, but, but people will think bad things about me. Well, Brett, are you more worried about what I think about you? Or are you more worried about what other people think about you? Well, I care about what you think about me. Okay, then, Brett, let that go. Okay. That's how God speaks to me. And, and, and if you don't, aren't hearing from God, if God isn't ever able to have you alone for a few minutes to speak some of those things into your life, that's probably the problem. Just a suggestion. What I'm doing is I'm trying to make it a pattern. I'm trying to make it a habit. I'm trying to do the same things over and over. I'm carving out time. Notice, I'm carving it out. It's not easy. There's too many things in our life already that compete for our time and attention. This takes effort to set aside a little bit of time and say, God, it's just going to be you and me. You and me, and I want to give you my undivided attention. Another example of this is what we're doing right now, where you just wake up on Sunday morning, you get yourself ready, and you come to church. Now, there's a hundred other places you could have been this morning. I commend you for being in church. You need to be at church. I know there's a bunch of stuff going on in your world. There's a bunch of different places you can go. But listen, nobody walks away from faith because they did a study and they said, you know what, I don't believe this about Jesus, I'm out. That's not why people leave church. 
People leave church because they, they wake up one Sunday morning and they go, oh, I don't, I'm tired, I don't feel like going today. Hit the alarm, turn it off, I'm going back to bed. Next Sunday, uh, just gets easier. It gets easier and easier. And the next thing you know, you look up and you've walked away from church. And that's not so much the problem because church isn't the deal. Jesus is the deal. But here's the thing. This is where you, you hopefully you're getting an infusion of Jesus all the time. But this is kind of where you get the super shot. You get all the friends. You get all the encouragement. You get the singing. You get a chance to give a little bit. You get a message that kind of encourages you. There's a lot of things that goes on. This is an important part. I tell people all the time. People say, Brad, is it really that important to go to church? Well, just let me put it to you like this. If you were a soldier and I was going to send you to Iraq when we were having the war, would you have wanted to go to Iraq with an army or by yourself? I want an army around me. That's what this is. This is the army. Listen, world's hard enough on us, right, to try and navigate that all by ourselves. but when you've got people around you to encourage you, that's why this is important. Be systematic about it. Be intentional about it. It is a pattern to, to systematically seek the Lord. King Asa is saying, look, if you want to grow in your faith, you've got to make seeking God a habit. So just a challenge for you this morning, what would it look like for you to become more, for it to become more of a habit for you? Something that you did more regularly, what would it look like for you? Maybe you've got the, the quiet time thing down, but maybe there's something else that you think, you know, I could do that, that would help me. Whatever that is, pursue that. King Asa takes the throne, brand new king, and instead of enjoying his power, and instead of enjoying these moments where he's just got nothing really to do, he gets right to work. He removes the competition, he implores them to seek the Lord, and then he does something else. Verse 6, he built up the fortified cities of Judah. Since the land was at peace, no one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. He is building up the fortified cities. Let me show you a fortified city. It's up on a hill, so there's some vantage point. The walls are high. You can see the towers. Men could get up in those towers and really see a long distance and protect the people that are inside there. I have no doubt that if you got up on that, on that hillside and you walked up to the walls, there are gates that would be manned by two or three men it takes to open those gates. The people on the inside of that city were safe because that city had been fortified. So what King Asa does, the third practice is he begins to build defenses. Not build the fences, that's not what I'm saying. Build defenses. Question. We read two times in that passage that the land was at peace. No one was attacking him, and yet he's building defenses. So here's the question. King Asa, why are you building defenses in times of peace? I mean, nobody's coming at you. Why, why are you doing that now? Shouldn't you take the money and the time you've got and invest it into better roads? Shouldn't you take the time and money you've got and invest it more into the, the, the kids and schooling and education? I mean, there's no, there's no threat. Why are you building these defenses? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Let's look at a map. I want to show you Judah. You see Judah just to the uh, right there of that red patch. The red patch is the Philistines. Now let's think about the Philistines. Enemies. The kingdom of Edom is the yellow part to the bottom, you know, to the south. What about those guys? Enemies. Kingdom of Moab to the east, enemy. To the north, you've got the kingdom of Israel. They just went through a civil war together, enemy. Philistines, absolutely an enemy. I mean, they're surrounded by enemies. 
And King Asa knows that while this might be a time of peace, it's just a matter of time before somebody pins their ears back and comes after them as a nation and tries to take them over. And so he's building his defenses now so that he will be ready later. Because when the enemy is at your door, it is too late to build a wall. You have to build defenses before the trouble starts. And so again, I'll ask, what would this look like for you? What would it look like for you to begin to build defenses? Maybe it looks like this. There's a young woman. She just got out of college. She's got an entry-level job. She's not making a whole lot of money. But she's meeting with a budget counselor. And you walk by and you see that and you're like, what in the world is she meeting with a budget counselor for? She's got no money. She's got no life experience. She hadn't done anything yet to get herself into all kinds of financial trouble. I mean, what is the point of meeting with somebody that's a budget counselor, if you don't have anything, what she's doing is she's putting a fence around what's important to her because she knows the time's coming when trouble could show up. She wants to be ready. So she's building defenses. It looks like a couple that maybe you know, and you see them, and they're just a little bit different than all the other couples. I mean, they're laughing. They're, 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 they always seem to be in a good mood. They don't ever seem to fight with one another. He's holding doors for her. He's such a gentleman. You know, she's kind to him. She respects him. You know, she's doing all, they, they do all the right things. And you think, you literally think, boy, I wish we were like that. I wish we looked like that. And then you find out they've signed up to go off on a marriage seminar. They're going to another city to go hear somebody do a marriage seminar. And you're like, they don't need a marriage seminar. That's the best put together couple I've ever met in my life. What are they doing? They're putting a fence around the thing that is most important to them. They're building defenses in peacetime because trouble could show up. And when trouble shows up, listen, if you've been married longer than two hours, you know trouble's going to show up, right? It's going to show up. Oh, we love each other. Look at each other like two cows dying in a hailstorm. <laughs> we love each other. Trouble is going to show up. So you better build a fence around that thing that is most important to you. That's what it looks like. King Asa would say to us, listen, if you want to grow in your faith and protect what really matters in your life, build the fence before the trouble comes. King Asa had 10 years, and he didn't waste it. He gets right to work. He removes the competition. He commands the people to seek the Lord. He begins to build defenses, but now time's up. Ten years of peace are done, and now trouble is at the doorstep, and trouble is coming from the south. 2 Chronicles 14, verse 9. Sarah, Zerah, the Cushite, marched out against them with an army of thousands upon thousands and 300 chariots and came as far as Mereshah. This is the southern end of Judah. Here's a map. Green section you see there on the left bottom corner is Egypt. Just below that would have been the land of Cush. To the right and up is the promised land, and you can see that orange marker, and that's what's happening. These troops are moving up, and they're coming up into Judah. What's the problem? You say, well, it's Cush. I mean, Cush is not a very big country. I mean, they, they weren't a huge kingdom, so what's going on there? They think probably what's going on is that, that the, the, whoever's leading this charge is probably not so much a a king of Cush or something like that. It's probably some kind of Egyptian general, and he has been given charge over this tribe of people, and so he is, on behalf of Egypt, going to go up, and he's going to challenge the kingdom of Judah. So they're coming. And here comes one of the world's superpowers, this massive army. They're headed right for Judah, and now Judah is tiny, and Egypt is huge. 
And we read thousands upon thousands and 300 chariots. And again, the chariot, I told you this a couple of weeks ago, the chariot was the tank of the day. Okay, Hugely important piece of equipment. Do you know how many chariots Judah had? Zero. No chariots. Here they come with 300. This is bad. Just imagine the people in the southern part of Judah looking to their south and they see off in the distance, they see the smoke that rises up off of other cities as this army makes its way toward their people and their property. And every city that they come into contact with, they burn it to the ground, they take who's ever there as prisoners and slaves, and they move on. And you know that as you look at that, that's what's headed your direction. And I expect that the, Judah, the people of Judah are frightened. And, and I, if I'm a farmer in, in the south part of Judah and I'm looking out and I see those sm that smoke, here's what I'm thinking. Oh my goodness. That's going to happen to me. What are they going to do when they get to my ground? They're going to burn my house. They're going to burn my farms. They're going to take my livestock. They're going to take me and my family. Who knows what they're going to do to my kids? Everything that I care about is being threatened in this moment. So King Asa, everything you've worked for is being threatened. So what are you going to do that is going to do something about this enemy that is knocking at the door? Here's what King Asa does. Verse 11. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army. Here's practice number four. Faced with the trouble that he did not see coming, he relies on God. He relies on God. Judah is threatened. Everything that King Asa has been working for is threatened. Question, what do you do when everything you have worked for begins to get threatened? How do you respond? When your reputation at work gets threatened, how do you respond? When your financial situation, something you've worked your entire life for, suddenly starts to get threatened, how do you respond? When one of your kids is at school and they're being bullied or something's not going right, how do you respond? What do we do when something or someone that we really care about is threatened? King Asa said, you rely on God. Here's another question. What is the opposite of relying on God? Relying on me. Relying on me, and that's, that's typically what we do. It's really tempting when something or someone starts to come at us and threaten the things that we have or the things we've accumulated or the things that we've worked for. It's very tempting for us to say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that that doesn't happen. That's relying on me. In the New Testament, Paul wrote uh, a letter to a church in Galatia. We know it as the letter to the Galatians. And in that letter, he's kind of talking about this, and he says, you basically have two options. You can rely on yourself, or you can rely on God. And he talks about when you rely on yourself, he gives that a name. He gives us a list. And he says, basically, that is the fruit of the flesh. I want to show you that list. See, when, when, when we get threatened, when things aren't going our way, when we've got all this stuff that we're protecting and stuff starts to happen, when we act on our own, that's the stuff that comes out of us. I know, because that's the stuff that has come out of me when I've relied on myself. And I have relied on myself. I know what it is to experience discord and jealousy and rage 
I know what it is to be envious. I know what it is to experience dissension because I acted not not because I was relying on God, but I was relying completely on me. And when I do that, that's kind of what you get. It's not just me, it's you too, right? You know what those things are. You experience those things, chances are good, you've relied on yourself. Here's the truth. When, When something I care about is threatened, I rely on me. I start to muscle up. I end up saying really stupid things that hurt people. When I start to rely on me, I, I, I focus on things that, that, that I want instead of thinking about what somebody else may want. I end up breaking relationships that I care about. Paul says, there are two ways you can handle this. You can rely on yourself or you can rely on God. The first one gives you the fruit of discord, the fruit of jealousy, fruit of rage. It's the fruit of the flesh. And then Paul gives us another list. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. You should be very familiar with this. We've talked about this a lot in the last year. He says, when you truly rely on God, when something presents itself to you and it's a threat to everything you've worked for and you're truly relying on God, what you're counting on is that God will produce in your spirit, from his spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. This is what that list looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God, you know, this this thing's coming at me. I want to depend on you. When I choose to rely on God, he is right there producing those things in me and in you. Those things help us to honor God. They help us to honor other people. They keep relationships intact. It leads to growth. It leads to life. We get threatened, and what do we do? We, we, We want to get angry. We want to dominate things. And what we need to do is talk to God and say, God, I need you to produce in me right now. I need some peace because I don't feel very peaceful. And I know if I let this go, if I do what I want to do, it's not going to end well. God, I, you know, I'm tempted to do something that's not good. I need you to produce in me goodness. God, I'm tempted to, to take charge. I'm tempted to muscle up. I'm tempted to... To, to, to go in a direction that I know right now is not going to honor you. God, I need mercy. I need goodness. I need patience. I need love. Two options. You can rely on yourself or you can rely on God. King Asa relies on God. God shows up in a powerful way. The, the, the Cushites, sure enough, come calling and God shows up and with the help of God, the Judah, uh, people of Judah drive the Cushites back to Egypt. And, and the kingdom of Judah is now able to plunder all these resources from the Cushites. God shows up. He takes care of them. He works through King Asa. He blesses them because they chose to rely on God. Now, what happens next in this story is fairly interesting. A prophet shows up. And he has a message for King Asa. And you think to yourself, well, this is going to be a good message, right? Because King Asa has been, you know, he's been killing it as a king. I mean, he's crushing it. So he's a great king, so this is all going to be good. Well, what, is it, what does it say? Second uh, Chronicles 15.1. The Spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Well, Brett, that's pretty harsh. I mean, King Asa's track record's been pretty awesome. What gives? 
How is King Asa going to respond to this challenging word from the prophet? Verse 8 of chapter 15. When Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. He took courage. And what did he do? He put the fifth practice into place. He responded humbly. He responded humbly. Sometimes it takes a tremendous amount of courage and an awful lot of strength to respond humbly. King Asa says, okay, if that's, if that's the message, then let's get back to work. So King Asa goes all throughout the land. He goes back to all the cities to double check and make sure that there are no high places, there are no Asherah poles, there are no idols to Baal. He goes to all the cities that they've conquered since they went through the first time and make sure that there's no different foreign gods. He's trying to make sure that they haven't leaked in somewhere. He gets back to work. King Asa finds out that his own grandmother has an Asherah pole in her backyard. And he has her deposed. The queen mother. Granny, get. Right? You can't have it. I mean, he's serious. What's he doing? He's responding humbly. He's returning to the practice of removing the competition. And because he responded humbly, he is producing spiritual growth in his life, in the lives of his people, and for his kingdom. What does it look like for us? I told you I spent Thursday and Friday at the Leadership Summit. One of the ladies that we were able to hear speak at the summit, she gave a great talk. Um, it's a lady named Sheila Heen, and she has written a book called Thanks for the Feedback. Um, I do not yet own that book. I will have possession of that book by Tuesday afternoon. Thank you, Amazon.com. So that book is already on the way to me. I ordered it, and it's on the way to me, and I, I'm looking forward to reading that because I, you know, I, like you, struggle probably like you do with feedback. Here's what I can tell you about that book. I haven't read it yet. I don't know everything it's going to say, but I can tell you one thing that that book's going to talk about for sure, no question. That book's going to talk about humility. Because to receive feedback well, you have to have humility. You have to be willing to listen to what somebody has to say. You've got to be able to look at somebody and say, man, that's hard to hear. But thank you for loving me enough to, to say that to me. Thanks for the feedback. A humble response to feedback leads to growth, and it's how we improve. If you want to improve something, anything, a relationship, uh, sports, career, whatever it is, when you get critiqued and confronted, when you get feedback, the best response is, hey, I want to thank you for loving me enough to say that to me and trying to help me get better. I appreciate that. Um, thank you. It's an opportunity for growth, but it is not easy. Because you know what wells up in me when I get negative feedback? I'm just being honest. Wow. Thanks for sharing. Get out of my face, jerk. Right? Let me share something with you. Right? That's, I mean, that's, that's what wells up in us. Welcome to Cross Lane. My name's Brett. I'm your friend. I'm just being real, okay? Um, I preach to me, then I preach to you. That's how this goes. I don't have this stuff all figured out. Takes humility to listen to feedback. Takes humility for somebody to come to you and put their arm around you and say, Brett, this is what I see. This is something I think you could do better. Maybe you should think about this. Takes a lot of humility to go, you know what? Thank you. Thank you. I'll be honest with you. It's hard for me. It's hard for me. I'm, I'm working on it, working hard on it. 
That's the real response of my heart. Maybe that's the real response of your heart. King Asa would say, look, there's so much wisdom in being able to say, okay, if that's the message, if that's the feedback, thank you for that. Humility is always a pathway to growth, life, and a relationship with God. Always. Humility will always take you in better directions. Always. Always. So King Asa's perfect, right? He never blows it. Is that it? No, he's not perfect. Let's fast forward to his 36th year of his reign. Once again, there's trouble at the door. This time it's coming from the south, and this is what we read in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. King Basha shows up, and he wants trouble. Let's look at the map again. So the king of Israel to the north is coming down. If you'll notice, Ramah is a little bit into Judah. So this king is really getting brazen. He's gone into another country. He's fortified a city there, and he's cutting off trade. Nobody's coming or going. This is bad. King Asa, what are you going to do here? Well, he's got this covered, right? I mean, he's done this stuff before. He knows what's going on. When trouble comes from outside that you're not ready for, you go to the fourth practice, you rely on God. Asa knows what to do. King Asa knows what to do here. Here's what King Asa does. He gathers all the money that he can gather. He sends it all the way up north. See that little green part up in the corner that says Aram? He sends all of his money to the king of Aram, and he basically says, hey, uh, the guy's name was Ben-Hadid, Ben-Hadad. He says, hey, Ben, buddy, would you, would you take this money, and if I give you this money, would you invade Israel and kind of occupy Israel for me? So sure, Aram goes, the guy at Aram says, yeah, sure, I'll do it. He, he invades Israel. The king, Basha, goes, oh my goodness, I've got trouble up to the north now. He takes all of his troops out of Ramah. He goes up to the north. Asa takes his troops, goes into Ramah, raids everything that got left behind, and takes over the city. And now he's not got just one city, but he's got two, Mizpah and Gebah. And, and, and you see that, and you're like, okay, Two fortified cities, wow, I mean, that's like a mic drop. Boom. What do you think about that, King Basha? Bam. Take that. I mean, that's pretty awesome. See, King Ace has been around for a while. It's not his first rodeo. He's a veteran king. He's not a rookie. He knows how to strategize. He knows how to deal with an international situation. And Judah ends up in a much better situation, and they are at the beginning than they were at the beginning of this crisis. So now another prophet shows up. We're almost done. Hang in there. We're almost done. A guy by the name of Hananiah the seer shows up, and he has a word for King Asa. Listen to what he says. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. King Asa, you forgot something. You forgot practice number four, relying on God. King Asa makes a huge mistake there. It's, it's terrible, but it's not the end of the world. We all make mistakes. Every great leader in the Bible made a mistake, okay? You're going to make mistakes. Mistakes don't kill you. You can recover. Asa, you can recover from this. Look at verse 10. Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison. At the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. That doesn't sound like relying on God. That's not producing fruit of the spirit. That's producing fruit of the flesh. Throwing people in prison? 
oppressing his own people. Verse 12, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from physicians. Asa is sick in bed, he needs help, he's hurting, and he refuses to call on God. He will not humble himself. He's bitter and he's angry and he's closed his heart to God. Verse 13, then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. End of story. How sad is that? It's a scary story. This guy's a brilliant king for 35 years, and at the end, he doesn't get the humility part right, and he throws it all away. That should scare every one of us. We could get it right for 35 years and not have humility in one instance and throw a, a friendship away or throw a job away or throw a marriage away. Here's the lesson for you and me. Humility could cost us everything if we don't practice it. Humility is always a path to growth and a pathway back to God and a pathway back to life. But refusing to respond with humility is tragic. Now, before we close, real quick, we're going to do one thing. I'm going to take you back into the story. Hananiah the seer is prophesying, and King Asa has relied on himself. And I'm going to read something because you likely missed it. I want you to hear it. He says, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord, the God, Lord God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. That's the guy that was up north. That's the guy he gave all the money to. Say, Aram, that, that's the guy that, in, he, he wasn't invading Judah. No, he's the guy that invaded Israel on behalf of Judah. Back to the map. The prophet's saying, listen, if you'd just done what you were told to do, if you just relied on God, I would have given you Aram and I would have given you Israel. You would have gotten two kingdoms. And you think to yourself, yeah, but wasn't Aram an ally? No, Aram wasn't an ally. The only reason they went into Israel is because he gave them all the money to do it in the first place. Hannah and I said, you missed out on an incredible thing because, because you could have had two kingdoms, but you wouldn't humble yourself and you wouldn't seek God. You wouldn't do it his way. The truth is when we refuse to rely on God, it can cause us to miss out on God's best for our life. And I'm just telling you, God wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. When you do it God's way, when you do these five things, remove the competition, seek the Lord, build defenses, rely on God. Respond humbly. Life is going to go better for you. I want to pray over you, and then Shelby and the band are going to come out and play us out. Let's pray together. Father, we need so need your help with this. We are not a humble people. By nature, we kind of muscle up, and we, we defend, and we... We, we fight back, and, and we don't receive humbly. God, I need help with this. I know other people need help with this. So I, we just, we ask for your help. We want to be the kind of people who are found relying on you and getting rid of the competition in our life for your attention. God, we want to be people known as people of God. We want to be your friend. And so, Lord, in these moments, we just confess to you that we don't always do this well. We're thankful that you don't turn your back and run away from us. You embrace us. You love us. You're there to, to, with, with forgiveness, overwhelming forgiveness. And so, God, as we step by step make our way back to you this week, we look forward to a restored relationship with you. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.